You can turn to your Bibles to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Let me read the verses for you. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And I went, went out because of a revelation, and I laid out to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, lest somehow... I mean, I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But this was because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them even or even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who worked in Peter unto his apostleship to the circumcised worked in me also unto the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. I recently had read uh, to my six-year-old a story titled The Club. And the story is about a grasshopper who goes on a journey. And the story goes like this. Grasshopper wanted to go on a journey. I will find a road, he said. I will follow that road wherever it goes. One morning, Grasshopper found a road. It was long and busy. It went up hills and down into valleys. This road looks fine to me, said Grasshopper. I am on my way. Grasshopper walks quickly along the road. He saw a sign on the On the side of the tree, the sign said, Morning is best. Soon Grasshopper saw another sign. It said, Three cheers for morning. Grasshopper saw a group of beetles. They were singing and dancing. They were were carrying more signs. Signs like, We love morning. Morning is tops. Kiss me, it's morning. Hail morning. Sweet sunrise. Good morning, said Grasshopper. Yes, said one of the beetles. It is a good morning. Every morning is a good morning. The beetle carried a a sign that said, Make my morning. This is a meeting of the We Love Morning Club, said said the beetle. Every day we get together to celebrate another bright, fresh morning. Grasshopper, do you love morning? asked the beetle. Oh, yes, said Grasshopper. Hooray, shouted all the beetles. Grasshopper loves morning. I knew it, said the beetle. I could tell by your kind face. You are a morning lover. The beetles made Grasshopper a wreath of flowers. They gave gave him a sign that said, Morning is tops. Now they said, Grasshopper is in our club. When does the clover sparkle with dew? Asked the beetle. In the morning, cried all the other beetles. 
When is the sunshine yellow and new? asked the beetle. In the morning, cried all the other beetles. They turned somersaults and stood on their heads. They danced and sang M-O-R-N-I-N-G, spells morning. I love afternoon too, said Grasshopper. The beetles stopped singing and dancing. What did you say, they asked? I said that I loved afternoon, said Grasshopper. All the beetles were quiet. And night is very nice, said Grasshopper. Stupid, said a beetle. He grabbed the wreath of flowers. Dummy, said another beetle. He snatched the sign from Grasshopper. Anybody who loves afternoon and night can never, never be in our club, said a third beetle. Up with morning, shouted all the beetles. They waved their signs and marched away. Grasshopper was alone. He saw the yellow sunshine. He saw the dew sparkling on the clover, and he went on down the road. Sadly, we Christians can often imitate a grouchy group of beetles instead of acting like the body of Christ. We join a church, we go through the membership process, and the one thing elders want to make sure that you're clear on is the gospel. This is true for our church This is true for other like-minded churches. Do you understand? Do you believe in the gospel? Does the gospel affect the way you live? In that way, we're kind of like the gospel morning club. And so you become a member. If you're a new believer, you're baptized before you become a member of a local church. We give you the right hand of fellowship, and everybody is happy. And we're all excited, and we all cry, three cheers for the gospel. And then what happens? We inevitably disagree on a particular matter of theology, on some doctrine, or about how the doctrine should be applied, or we disagree about some social issue, or how we should think about a situation biblically. We disagree about Halloween and holidays. We disagree about how we should school our children, a public, private, homeschool. Someone says they love afternoon, and then we say, dummy. We mentally, emotionally take away the wreath of flowers we first gave to them when they joined our gospel club. You see, when we disagree with each other, we don't just disagree, we despise each other in varying degrees, don't we? We sometimes think, well, they're obviously wrong about this matter. There's no way I could be wrong. And that means they're not as mature as I am. They clearly, clearly don't know the Bible as well as I do. Or we think, oh, he, he's, he's, he might be a liberal. Or even question their salvation. Or even worse, at the corporate level, ch- churches divide. They split. We hurl accusations at one another while doing so. We disassociate ourselves from Christian organizations and fellowships. We leave denominations, we form new ones, we create create new factions, we assume the very worst about each other, we demonize entire sections and swaths of Christianity, we mock one another, we dishonor the body Christ died for. We say like a bunch of angry beetles, anyone who loves afternoon and night can never, never be in our club. We're in part two of a two-part sermon series from Galatians 2, 1 through 10, titled Together for the Gospel. And Paul, in these verses, he defends through this summary of his travels for 14 years a statement he made in chapter 1 
11 and 12. There he said, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He then lists his movements for 14 years since he was converted to show this minimal contact and correspondence that he had with the apostles in Jerusalem. Why is he doing that? Because the false teachers, known as the Judaizers, have infiltrated the Galatian churches. They're teaching a false gospel. They're spreading this lie that the gospel that Paul delivered uh, to them was tampered with by him. Paul received his gospel secondhand from the Jerusalem apostles. Then he removed the requirement of obeying Old Testament, Old Testament law for salvation. This this, this gospel of, of grace Paul is preaching to Gentiles is because he's a, he's a man pleaser. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want to offend the Gentiles. He doesn't want to risk losing them with the Judaism most Gentiles found burdensome. So Paul defends his apostleship and his gospel by, by, uh, by, by proving divine origin. It came through a revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 12, he, he received the gospel on the road to Damascus where he was saved, where he was called into apostolic ministry, and his gospel is independent. There was minimal contact between the apostles in Jerusalem. Look, look at the last 14 years of my, my travel, my travel log. This is Paul's defense. Last Sunday, we considered the first point of these 10 verses of chapter 2 the priority of the gospel. 14 years after his conversion, 11 years after he had first met Peter for 15 days in Jerusalem, according to uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, he he returns again to Jerusalem in chapter 2, not to be further instructed about the gospel, but to make sure that his gospel was identical with Jerusalem's gospel. In verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul says, that he, verse 2, laid out to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. Paul, Paul laid out the gospel. The verb means to lay something before someone for consideration. You find the same word one more time in Acts twenty-five fourteen. Luke writes, and while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. So Paul presents his gospel in all detail to the other apostles. And he argues that Titus, a Gentile that he brought with him, will not be circumcised in order to be saved. Because faith alone, in grace, uh, by grace alone, in Christ alone, is sufficient. It's, it is entirely sufficient. But... Verse 4, chapter 2, there were false brothers who secretly secretly were brought into this private meeting and they, they snuck in to spy out our freedom which we have in Christ in order to enslave us. These false brethren in this private meeting are trying to convince the group that Titus needs to be circumcised in order to complete his salvation. 
And Paul was afraid of this meeting. He was expecting it. Verse 2, he, he, was, he, was, he laid it before them. He thought he might be running in vain or had run in vain. He thought this, the, 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 the Jerusalem apostles might capitulate, and he knew it, it would divide the church. And yet he's ready to do it in order to protect the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel takes priority over unity. As important as church unity is, because when the gospel is lost, you can't have unity in the church when there is no church. If we lose the gospel, we lose the church. Before we can have unity in the gospel, we must first share a priority in the gospel. And that's where we left off last Sunday. And now we move to point number two, the unity of the gospel, verses 6 through 10. The Lord Jesus on the night... Before, on the night he was betrayed, before he died on the cross, he prayed these words in John 17, 20 to 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, Father, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you had given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Our unity in the church is created, it is purposed, it is designed to reflect the unity of the Trinity. Our love for each other needs to show the world where that love comes from, where that love flows out of, where that love finds its source. And the source is the Father's love for us. Jesus prays that the same love that the Son enjoys with His Father would be the same love believers enjoy with God the Father as well, would be the same love that we believers would love each other with. But this unity starts with the truth. Jesus begins John 17, 20 with this, but uh, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Their word is the apostles' word. The word of the gospel. In verse 6, however, Paul now compares the authority of the gospel with the authority of the church. But for, verse 6, for from those who were of high reputation, he's referring to the apostles here, what they were, uh, they were, they were those who had followed Christ for three years, the original twelve, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality with respect to the authority, with, with, with respect to the supremacy of the gospel. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. They didn't add to my gospel. They don't have that kind of authority. No exalted group of men get to decide what divine revelation is. They can't take away from the gospel. They don't have the authority to to add to the gospel. In other words, the church doesn't define the gospel. Even the apostles. We don't get to change it. We don't get to improve upon it. We don't don't get to decide if, if other gospels are valid. No, the gospel defines the church. Therefore, we must defend, defend this message 
without a concern for any human authority, not even the apostles. They, they make no difference to me in that regard. Paul says, my loyalty is not to the apostles, even though I love them, even though I respect them, I honor them, my loyalty is to Christ and his gospel of grace. And by extension, all of the Bible possesses within itself a higher authority than men, even the original apostles. If the, if the gospel came from Jesus, and if all of the scripture came from Jesus through the inspiration of scripture, then all of the word of God, for that matter, has a higher authority than even the church. The church did not produce the Bible. The word of God created the church. God spoke first, and the church came into being through that word. Jesus called the twelve to himself through his word. Peter spoke God's word, and the Spirit came upon the church. In Acts 2, creating the church, the church did not come up with the idea of God and Christ and the gospel. God came up with the idea of the church, and he created that church through the proclamation of the message of Christ crucified. J.C. Ryle said the first leading feature in evangelical religion is the absolute supremacy it assigns to Holy Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice, the only test of truth, the only judge of controversy. And we believe this statement is true because this is what Jesus taught. Turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 7, 1 through 13. And here we see... The authority of the word versus the authority of tradition. The authority of religious tradition as decreed by religious authority, by religious leaders. What takes precedent? Verse 1, chapter 7, the Pharisees, some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with defiled hands, that is, unwashed. So the disciples, they're eating their bread. Usually when you ate, verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands. This religious washing so that you would not defile the bread. You probably, during the day, touched something that defiled you. You might have touched a Gentile, and that would have defiled you, and so you need to, you need to go through this religious hand-washing before you eat. This was the traditions of the elders. This was law to them. Verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves, and there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And so you have this religious formalism, this externalism, and the Pharisees see that the disciples and Jesus are not following that. So they ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their, hand, their bread with defiled hands? Why don't they listen to the counsel of the elders? Why don't they listen to the Pope? Why don't they listen to the, 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 the authority of the, the Catholic Church? And he said to them, rightly did... Pro of Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Jesus says in verses 6 through 8 that when you uh, equate a religious authoritative tradition, when you put that on the level of, an, of the inspired trans, tra revelation of God's word, that's hypocrisy. Verse 6, the people honors me with their lips and their hearts are far away, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. 
You're taking your religious traditions and your, and your decrees, you're teaching them as doctrines, and that is a sign of hypocrisy. Verse 8, leaving the commandment of God, you hold to the, to the tradition of men. And now Jesus, in verses 9 through 13, he gives an example of that, where tradition, where religious uh, rules, in addition to Scripture, where, they had, where, the, where, where it had superseded the authority of God's Word. Verse 9, Jesus was saying to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Jesus, verse 10, notice, this is a quote from the Old Testament, but Jesus says, Moses said this. He's acknowledging divine origin. It's Moses' word, and verse 13, it's the word of God. That's the law. That's the word of God, verse 10. That's revelation, but, verse 11, you say... If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever you might benefit from me is korban, that is to say, given to God. So this idea of korban was basically, let's say your father and your mother, they were poor, they were needy, they needed help, and you, were, and you had money, but you were greedy, and you didn't want to give it to them, you, you needed an excuse. And so the Pharisees came up with this, this, this idea, this procedure, where you could declare a portion of your money korban that you would later give the temple so that you could tell your parents, well, hey, I want to help you, but I've, I've taken this money, and I, I've said korban, this is dedicated to the temple, and th- this was the key. You didn't really have to give the money. You can change your mind later. And, and this was a tradition that the Pharisees had instituted in Israel. It was treated as the law. But look at verse 12. When you do that, you no longer leave him to do anything for his mother or his father, and you violate the law, verse 10, you violate that command, one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother, verse 13. This is the point. You in, you're invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. This is the principle. That he's saying that whenever human words and traditions conflict with the divine word, even if, even if it's from the Pharisees, even if it's from a pope or council, Scripture stands supreme over, over all. Scripture has final legislative authority over the decrees of the best of men. And that's what Paul is saying. I presented my gospel to them, I laid it down to them, and it didn't matter what they said because even when compared to the apostles' authority, the gospel has a higher authority. They contributed nothing to me. They were of reputation. They were pillars. I get that. But they had no right, they had no authority to say my gospel was false because it came from Jesus. And the early church affirmed this principle. Irenaeus wrote that Scripture, quote, is the ground and pillar of our faith. Two centuries later, Athanasius said, these, the the Scriptures, are the fountain of salvation. Let no man add to these. Augustine later would write words similar to Galatians 2.6, for the reasoning, quote, for the reasonings of men whatsoever, even though they be Catholics and of high reputation, are not to be treated by us in the same way as the canonical scriptures are treated. And it was this point regarding the supremacy of scripture that Luther clashed with Rome. Sylvester Prioris, the first 
theologian that debated with Luther, he summarized Rome's position with these words. He said, He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and Pontiff of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Even today, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, teaches, quote, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both, Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. But that contradicts what Jesus just said in Mark 7. Even the original apostles, go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, even they contributed nothing to Paul's apostolic calling, his gospel of grace, his New Testament theology. They couldn't edit Paul, officially approve or disapprove Paul's gospel. All they could do was confirm it was the same gospel they too had received from the Lord Jesus. God shows not, no partiality, verse 6. In other words, the the apostles have just as much authority as you and me to change or to add or to take away from the gospel of Christ. God gives his gospel to his people, his word to his people, and we're all supposed to submit. The apostles, the pope, cardinals, bishops, uh, you and me, all of us. God shows no partiality. And once this theology of the gospel is affirmed as the true gospel from heaven, then unity can be enjoyed among God's people. And this is where verses in 7 through 10, Paul moves to the second point, and that is, once you establish the independence and the authority and the supremacy of the gospel, then we can now talk about unity. Unity cannot come at the expense of the truth. Unity finds as its only source the accuracy and the veracity of the gospel. You cannot have true unity among Christians without the true gospel. Gospel priority is the root of church unity. Church unity is the fruit of gospel priority. And so what was the outcome of this meeting Paul had with the Jerusalem apostles? On the way to the, to the conclusion, it was pretty tense. It was a theological jujitsu match. But in the end, according to verse 7... What happened? On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who works in Peter unto his apostleship, and to the circumcised worked in me also unto the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. The apostles recognized that the gospel that Paul preached was the same gospel Peter preached. Two different spheres, two different contexts of ministry, one gospel of grace. And because Paul's gospel was so sound, they concluded in verse 8 that the same God who worked in Peter worked in Paul. Because Paul's gospel was the same gospel the apostles believed in and preached, they recognized that God had given Paul grace. Verse 9, 
the same grace that they had received. Because they agreed on the gospel, Paul and Barnabas were given the right hand of fellowship. Again, verse 9, same gospel, different ministries, different people groups, same message. And this is Paul's argument to his, to his opponents in Galatia. I didn't mess up the gospel that you say I received from the apostles. No, I received it from Jesus. The the gospel doesn't come from people. The origin of the gospel is not the church. The origin of the church is the gospel. And so Paul's defense is this. My gospel is independent. The gospel, the Jerusalem apostles, is independent. And they're one and the same. Your gospel of works is false. Your gospel doesn't agree with the apostles in Jerusalem. The gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone is true. And because of that, we, you and I, false teachers of Galatia, Judaizers, there is no unity among us. What must be your response when someone believes in the same gospel you do? What must be your response when someone believes in the same gospel that you do? You must conclude three realities. Verse 7, you must conclude that they have been entrusted with the gospel that you have been entrusted with. Number 2, you must conclude, verse 8, that God must be working in them as he is working in you. Verse 9, you must conclude, if they believe in the same gospel, you must recognize the grace that has been given to them and to you. And as a result of recognizing these three realities, Therefore, if they've been entrusted with the gospel, if God is working in them, if they've been given grace, you must extend the right hand of fellowship. Verse 9. What does that phrase mean, right hand of fellowship? Well, the words right hand in the New Testament is used over and over again to refer to Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that means Jesus is one with the Father. He has the same authority, same purpose, same will, same power. And so if we take some of that thought to this phrase, right hand of fellowship, we can conclude that if we all agree on the same gospel, we're bound together with one heart, one purpose, one mission, one will. And to attack somebody in the right hand of fellowship would be like the Son attacking the Father. That's pretty horrible, right? And yet we do that all the time, don't we, sadly? We agree with each other on the content of the gospel, but when we disagree about other things outside of the gospel, as I said earlier, we don't just disagree with each other, we despise one another in varying degrees. And even the best of us, we rationalize this this derision by thinking to ourselves, oh, 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 Sally, or oh, Jack, he doesn't agree with me on this issue or this doctrine. That must mean his gospel must be defective, or, or he or she doesn't really believe in the gospel the same way I believe in the gospel. This is a problem, a big problem. And so this morning, I want to propose a better way for gospel unity and Christian maturity. 2005, Albert Moeller proposed a way of organizing Bible doctrine on different tiers of importance. And he coined the term theological triage. For the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to talk about theological triage in order 
to help Christians defend the faith without attacking one another in the process. Right now, our culture is attacking Christianity, but it's not just attacking the gospel, it's attacking everything. It's attacking our view on sexuality, on gender, it's attacking our views on what is right and wrong on, on an international scale. And so, how do we defend the truth of Scripture while at the same time displaying this Trinitarian unity? We do what Moeller proposes through theological triage. And triage comes from the medical field. It's used in the emergency room. And maybe some, some nurses here might be aware of that. And where, where doctors, where they need to prioritize the most serious injuries in an ER. What kind of patients need to be rushed into surgery immediately, and what kind of patients can afford to wait? Do you take in a child who is struggling to breathe before or after an elderly person dealing with serious confusion? So triage helps ER doctors and nurses gauge priority. Theological triage helps Christians gauge doctrinal priority. Theological triage helps Christians order doctrines to remind us of what binds us together and what theological doctrines demand our highest attention. Theological triage helps us choose churches. Theological triage can help us know what kind of believers we can fellowship with, do ministry with, what conferences I can go to or I'm allowed to go to, or even in relationships, who I can date, who I can marry. Theological triage helps us love one another when we will inevitably degree on afternoon and the night and morning. Triage helps us rein in the temptation to quickly demonize other believers on issues that we are particularly attached to or doctrines we think are very important. There are times in my ministry where I'm teaching on a Friday night usually and I'll have an interpretation of a verse or lay out a principle and somebody will object and not agree and, 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 I, and, and I make it my rule that you can always disagree with me openly, privately, I don't, you can push back. I, I invite that. I, I like that. I think, it's, I think it's healthy. But I get to disagree with you too. And so I'll disagree, and there'll be times where the person will take it really personally. And, I'm try, and I try to, try to convey, convey, I'm not, this isn't personal. I just believe that this verse means this way. That, that's all. And, and, and the, the person will assume the worst about me. And I'm guilty of that myself. Somebody will disagree on a doctrine, or some, some, some doctrine I think is important, and I'll think to myself, oh, i got a, I got a, I got a, I got a liberal on my hands. Oh, 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 I do the same thing. Theological triage helps us disagree with other believers, listen to me, in a mature way. It forces us to soberly think about with clear, mature, biblical reasons why I might be tempted to keep my distance, to separate from you, to judge you, a believer 
who believes in the gospel. Gavin Ortland, in his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, he expounds on Moeller's initial proposition with the following fourfold model that I think is a good place to start for us. And if you could pull that up. You see that? And these are the following. There are first-ranked doctrines that are essential to the gospel itself. There are second-ranked doctrines that are urgent for the health and practice of the church, such as that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of the local church denomination and or ministry. There are third-ranked doctrines that are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians. And there are fourth-ranked doctrines that are unimportant to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. A few months ago, somebody, somebody emailed me, and he said, hey, I have three questions for you. What Bible version do you, you use, number one? Number two, what kind of songs do you sing? Number three, are there, are there women who are, are in the service? Thank you. Bye. Dave. Or somebody. I thought, is this a real person? Like, is this like this, you know, person trying to get me? It was just so, this just, I thought it was kind of weird. So I didn't want to answer. I was kind of paranoid. I didn't want to answer the email. I said, in my mind, I want to prove you're a real person. Call me, and I'll answer the question. He calls me. I said, well, you know, we don't have an official translation. I use the legacy. We got... New King James, King James, ESV, NIV, all over. Number two, uh, we focus on the theology of the lyrics. It has to be biblical, so modern hymns, as long as it's, it's good lyrics. Number three, yeah, we have women who uh, serve in the praise team or read scripture. Okay, thank you, bye. <laughs> he never came and visited our church. Where do you think they fall? First, second, third, fourth. We'll, we'll talk about that later. First, we have to ask the question, is theological triage or the concept of theological triage biblical? Because usually the response is, all the Bible is important. What are you talking about? It is biblical. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.3 speaks of the gospel as of first importance. That implies Paul is ranking doctrine. If there is a first, there must be a second. Jesus spoke in Matthew 23.23 of the weightier matters of the law. Jesus is speaking in terms of comparison. If there are weightier matters of the law, there are necessarily matters less weighty. And yet at the same time, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that any doctrine that doesn't fall in the first rank, the first tier, is unimportant because then you would be saying much of the Bible is not important. Which is, I, which is, I, which is, which is why I like the wording of Ortland's four-tier system, right? There's essential, urgent, important, and there's unimportant. So three out of the four are basically levels of importance. If the doctrine is in the Bible, it is important, but not 
all doctrine will rise to the level where if you get it wrong, it damns you to hell. Now, what doctrine goes in what category? And that's not going to be easy. It's going to be different for many of us here. Especially when it comes to second, third, and fourth rank doctrines. It's kind of a science. It's kind of an art. It requires wisdom and prayer. It requires a deep understanding of theology and scripture and church history. It requires a plurality of elders and a congregation kind of working together to come up with a general agreement of what falls where. And so we need some wise tests that help us rank the pure word of of God. And, And Ryan Putman in his book, When Doctrine Divides the People of God, he offers three tests to help us come up with a sound and reasonable triage. And they are three tests, and I'm going to add a fourth test of my own. The first test is the hermeneutical test. That is, the clearer the Bible teaches a doctrine, the more likely it belongs in a higher tier. And so for me personally, the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church are a lot clearer than passages about the spiritual sign gifts, continuationism, cessationism. So for me, I rank the egalitarian-complementarian divide higher than I do the cessationist-continuationist difference. I hear the best arguments against complementarianism or against male pastors only, and I'm just not convinced at all. I I just don't have a lot of respect for the arguments. I just think it's weak. When When I hear arguments from Scripture about the spiritual gifts continuing, I'm a, I'm a lot more impressed. Uh, they, they, uh, many continuationists make some really strong arguments that I don't agree with in the end, but I respect it. Oh, I, I, I say to myself, I can see it why you might land that way. That's just me. Number two, the gospel test. That is, the more central a doctrine is to the gospel, the more likely it belongs on a higher tier. Number three, the praxis test. The more a doctrine affects the practice of a a church, the more likely it belongs on a higher tier. I'm going to add one more test, the church history test. Because the Spirit has been working for 2,000 years in the church, and that means the church history can help us. What has been the major consensus of the church on a particular doctrine? Major creeds, confessions, they can help us determine what doctrines the church has considered crucial and necessary. And while these four tests don't answer every question, when we run common doctrines through the test of hermeneutics, gospel, praxis, church history, we will likely conclude three things. Number one, that doctrines like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith alone in Christ, the infallibility, inspiration, uh, the, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, because they are clear hermeneutically, because they are essential to the Gospel, because of the consensus of the church for the past 2,000 years, they all therefore belong in the first tier. Tier number one. We conclude number two, that doctrines related to baptism, the roles and calling of men and women in the church and in marriage because they shape a church's praxis or practice in a significant way, right? You either baptize babies or you don't, right? You can't have a church where you baptize some babies who parents who believe in child baptism and you don't 
baptize babies who don't believe in children baptism. You can't have, well, these are the covenant children of the church, and these are the pagan kids. You, you can't have that in one church. You, you either have a woman pastor or you don't. And because the church in the past has had strong views on these issues, especially baptism, it would typically fall within the second tier. Doctrines like the timing of Christ's return and the nature of the continuity of spiritual gifts, and that kind of depends kind of how charismatic you are, right? Because they don't affect the practice of the church as much or because you don't have a really a, a church-wide consensus in history, especially with the spiritual gifts on these matters, and because these doctrines are arguably less connected to the gospel, typically they might belong with the, within the third tier. And so when all is said and done, we might disagree on a second-tier issue or a third-tier matter, but we can still worship the Lord together. We can fellowship together. We can go to conferences together. If we disagree on a first-tier issue, however, then we have a problem, and the problem is this. I cannot call you a brother and sister or sister in Christ. We cannot pray together. We cannot worship the Lord together. We cannot do ministry together. We cannot be partners together. Now, this triage business seems kind of difficult and complicated, and you're like, why, why, why are we practicing this? Why, why do we need to kind of put this in our minds and put this into our church culture? Well, because we want to be the visible Trinitarian manifestation in answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, don't we? Because we want to obey the command to find our unity in the gospel. L listen to Paul uh, command gospel unity in Philippians 1.27. He says, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. You see that? One spirit, one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. And I really believe that Paul, in his mind, he's thinking about gospel, he's thinking about other doctrines, and he says, when it comes to the faith of the gospel, you need to have one spirit and one mind and one heart. Why else should we practice theological triage? give you another reason. We need to distinguish doctrines in order to avoid the dangers of theological maximalism, theological minimalism, and what I call gut reaction triage. Theological maximalists are sometimes called fundamentalists in the worst sense. I'm a fun fundamentalist in that I believe strongly in, I believe strongly in first tier gospel truths. I'm an evangelical when it used to mean I believe in the evangel, the gospel. But a theological maximalist is a fundamentalist in the most pejorative sense of the term. It's the no fun, all damn, not a lot of mental fundamentalist. Maximalists are sectarians who raise third-ranked doctrines to second-ranked doctrines. Or, or they raise third-ranked doctrines and second-ranked doctrines to first-ranked doctrines. Maximalists are quick to separate when they should be patient. They divide when they should bear weaknesses in love. Maximalists have a problem with theological triage. When they hear triage, they hear an attack on the truth. And they use the rod on sheep 
instead of on wolves. They separate when they should unite. Theological minimalists, on the other hand, are often found in liberal circles. Minimalists lower first-tier doctrines to third-tier doctrines. Everything is a third-tier doctrine. No doctrine is worth fighting for. They cry out unity when there is no unity. Everybody has a right to their own interpretation. But what, listen, but what theological maximalists and minimalists both share is a small gospel. They both share a small gospel. Because the gospel is small for the maximalist, lesser doctrines are just as important and big as their small gospel. They look at the gospel, they look at premillennialism, and, and, it, and it weighs the same to them. It looks like the same size to them. On the other hand, because the gospel is small for the minimalists, they easily reduce their tiny gospel to third-tier doctrinal importance. Years ago, last year I joined uh, this Facebook group, uh, this Reform Parenting Facebook group. And that group was so nasty so unloving, so ungracious, I left after a few weeks. To see parents mercilessly, mockingly attack other Christian parents for different views on how to educate their children was truly disgusting to behold. I'm not not saying one person, everybody's right. But there's a way when you're right to respond to somebody who is wrong. What was the problem with this reformed parenting group? They had a small gospel. They had raised the level of education choices for their children to the level of first-tier gospel importance. It was like they were fighting for the gospel in Galatia. The man who had asked me these questions, what, he had, this this is fourth rank stuff. Bible translation, that's that's fifth rank. And he elevated to the second rank. His problem weren't my answers, his problem was his small gospel. Theological triage helps us recognize within ourselves whether or not we have lost the height and the depth and the glory, and the supremacy of the gospel. I really like theological triage because it also helps us from engaging in gut reaction triage, right? Where we weigh doctrines and separate with other believers out of a mixture of our personality, of our personal experiences, our background, out of our fleshly pride. Theological triage prevents us from weighing doctrines, doctrines instinctively instead of biblically. It keeps us from thinking the very worst about one another. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The church does this more than we think. We are strangely attracted to our gnats, and we are blind to camels. As one writer said, we cannot abide the gnat in our stew, but we can stomach the camel in our meatloaf. Triage helps us weigh doctrines, and triage helps us discern our hearts. What do you naturally drift toward? Do you tend to naturally drift toward 
theological minimalism or theological maximalism? Or do you practice gut reaction triage? You have no idea why you prioritize some doctrines over others. It's just instinctive. It's often fleshly. Some of you despise other Christians because other conservative Christians despise those Christians. So my question to you is, if if a thousand conservatives jump off a building, would you jump off the building? If John MacArthur jumped off a building, would you follow him? I hope not. Is your triage all over the place? How quickly, how badly do you judge other Christians who believe in the same gospel that you do? Again, the problem with this division, the problem with this, this, this judging, despising heart is a small gospel. Paul writes the book of Romans because of disunity. The Jewish and Gentile believers, that they can't get along. In Romans 14, there are disputes about what you can eat, what day you should worship the Lord. And Paul's sol- solution for 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11, is the gospel. If the gospel cannot unite us, nothing else can. And so, brothers and sisters, why do we meet every Sunday? Why do we meet every Sunday? Why should we love each other in spite of all our differences? Because we're the gospel club. True unity in the gospel is the sole result of a sincere priority of the gospel. So how great is your gospel? Do you still see the yellow sunshine of the blazing gospel of Christ? Does the dew sparkling on the clover of the gospel still catch your eye? If so, you can join our club. And we'll never kick you out. We pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, this simple truth that we never renege, we never compromise the gospel. It's out of this gospel we have unity. And yet, not everything in Scripture weighs the same. As important as genealogies are, they don't weigh the same as justification by faith. important as the timing of Christ's return. It doesn't weigh the same as the nature of Jesus as God and man. Lord, it's okay to have our musical preferences. It's okay to have our favorite Bible version. But Lord, when we use that as a test for church membership, Lord, Convince us, remind us, convict us that maybe we have forgotten the glory of the gospel. Lord, deepen our love for Christ. Deepen our love for Christ crucified and resurrected. Lord, would we would we never dishonor another believer that Christ died for, that you are working in, that you will save. No matter what our peers around us are 
our circles, whatever, wherever they, where they go and, and judge, would we, would we be sober? Would we use this instrument like triage to help us be mature about our differences? We want to be a mature church, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.